Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10:15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. From the way back, as far as we know in time, all the way back to languages that have long been dead, the people of the ancient Near East thought of their kings as shepherds. Way back to that old artifact that we now call the Code of Hammurabi, the old Babylonian king from a couple of millennium before Jesus, talked about his responsibility given by his God as a shepherd of his people, to shepherd his people. The Greeks in the Iliad, if you read Homer's Iliad, you'll find a dozen times where the kings of the Greeks are called the shepherds of their people, even back in ancient Egypt, all over the ancient world. This language about what it meant for the leader of a people to become a shepherd who led, guided, fed, and protected the people. Sometimes of their own sense of responsibility and duty, but often as a sense of their responsibilities and duties that had been given to them by the gods of their people. Shepherd language occurs over and over and over again. And when Israel tells the tale of the king that they long remember as the best that they had to offer, the king whose name echoes through the history books as king after king is weighed and found wanting, what the language often says is, he did or he did not follow in the way of his father David. David is Israel, Judah's king par excellence. He is the best they've got. And it is no accident that we are given his origin story as a shepherd. Because the good king was the shepherd king. And so the anointing story of David when he's first told that he's going to become the king, when the prophet goes to him, and the first his brothers, you remember, the prophet Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and they go through all of his different brothers, beginning from the oldest and to the youngest, and in each one in turn, he says, not this one, not this one, not this one, and then they finally say, do you have no other sons? And Jesse tells the prophet, he says, I have but one, the smallest of them all. And he is where? Where was he? Come on, church, where was he? He was with the flocks. He's in the field. He was being the shepherd with the sheep. And they sent for him. They brought him before the old prophet. And he was anointed to be the next king of Judah, of Israel. David, the shepherd king is one of the most beloved stories of Israel. And one of the longest too, by the way. If you really want to read the whole thing, you pretty much have to read 1 and 2 Samuel. 
But I wanna focus on two scenes of that old shepherd king today. We've been kind of doing a thing in our uh, sermons over the last few months, or last couple of months, where we've kind of taken old familiar stories and used them to think about the mission of God at work in the world and maybe some of what God is calling us to do and to become. Today I want us to think about David, the shepherd king, and I want us to start with this most beloved story of David that's in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. It's the story of David and Goliath. And the story starts with Israel's old, old foes, the, the Philistines, and they're engaged in, well, not really a battle, but what is quick to become one. This is the pregame show, I suppose we should say. And the Philistines are camped on one side in, in the, uh, of a valley, and then the uh, Israelites are camped on the other side, and there's a giant that comes down, okay? He comes down from the, uh, from the Philistine side, and he shouts uh, insults at Israel over and over again. So the, the Philistines, the best, the biggest fighter they have, they send down. And he taunts them over and over again if they will not actually send somebody to fight or not. And he said, and in this, in this story, the thing that is so obvious on the outset of this story is that Israel had somebody who was in line to go fight this giant. Because way back when we're told about when the prophet had anointed this first king of Israel, Saul, we're told that Saul stood a head taller than everybody else among the people. Who's the tallest and strongest and most powerful warrior in the camp of Israel on that day? It's Saul, the king, the first king of Israel. But he wasn't on the battlefield. He wasn't ready to stand and protect his people. Instead, he was in the back lines, in a tent, armor laying on the floor. Eventually, this boy shepherd, David, makes his way to the battlefield. He's just carrying a lunch for his brothers who are there. They taunt him, in fact, and they actually say when he comes and he expresses his outrage that this giant is speaking against the God of Israel, he says, uh, his brothers, and, and, and David expresses his outrage, and then his brothers say this. This is in uh, 1 Samuel 17, and in verse, let's see, what, where are we at? We're in verse 28. His eldest brother, Eliab, heard him talking to the men. Eliab's anger was kindled against, danger, against David, and he said, why have you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you hear the insult here? Little boy, little shepherd boy, you have no place here. You have no place here among this space for the powerful of Israel, for the strong of Israel, for the warriors of Israel. Even as they stand cowering against the onslaught of this giant and his words of insult, 
they still have more disregard for David. David just says what every little brother says at this moment. What have I done? It was just a question. I'm a big fan of little brothers. I just want to be clear about that. But they have some lines. He turned away from him toward another and he spoke in the same way and the people answered him as before. David starts going through the camp, everybody he sees, asking him, why is this Philistine out here insulting? Why is he allowed to blaspheme God? Eventually the king hears words of this. <coughs> Excuse me. When the words that David spoke were heard, this is verse 31, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him, Saul sent for David and David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are just a boy and he has been a warrior from his youth. Now, Listen to what David says in reply to this. It's the second time that the shepherd motif has already shown up in the story. Remember, it showed up when his brother insulted him. Aren't you supposed to be watching those sheep? Didn't, aren't, who did you leave your sheep with, David? David says this in response to Saul. Your father, or your servant, used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock... I went after it and I struck it down and I rescued the lamb from its mouth and if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw and strike it down and kill it. David says to the supposed protector of Israel, I've been protecting sheep my whole life and if you won't go out there, I'll do it. I'll do it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them since he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who has saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, go. And may the Lord be with you. And the stage is set. And let's find out. <laughs> this is, for good reason, the setup of one of Israel's most beloved stories about their shepherd king. The day that he came and all of those things that had enabled him to be a good shepherd were now going to be translated into what it meant to be a good king. To stand for and to protect the ones that were hurting or weak or who couldn't stand on their own. And even though David doesn't have the capacity physically to go fight this, uh, this giant on his own, his confidence is in God who he believes will fight for and with him when Saul says you are not able David does not say I am able he says God is able God is able and so he goes 
and a stone later, the giant is dead. And Israel has a new hero. Someone that they know will stand against those forces that are against them. Somebody that they know they can count on to rescue them when they are being oppressed by some more powerful party. And by the way, this is just what Israel was hopeful for when they signed up for kingship at the beginning. When the, after that cycle of the judges that went on for several generations where they would find themselves falling away from God, rebelling against God in their sin, and then coming uh, under oppression from their neighbors until God raised up someone who would deliver them and fight for them and deliver the, and bring, them back, uh, bring them back in God to victory and stability. The people said to the ancient prophet, said to Samuel, we want someone who will go out and fight for us. Someone who, like the other kings of the other nations, will go out and lead us in battle. They wanted someone not like Saul, who would just stay in his tent on the background. They wanted someone like this shepherd boy, who when it all came, push came to shove, would step onto the battlefield, put himself on the line, and trusting in God, to protect the people in their moment of need. David was just the king they were looking for in this first scene, the story of Goliath. Scene two happens many, many years later. It's the story of Bathsheba. It's the story of the king now who has claimed the throne. And for what it's worth, this story takes place in, uh, in 2 Samuel, okay, Be beginning, in verse, or beginning in chapter 11. <clears throat> the first part of the book of 2 Samuel will tell you how when the dust has settled and Saul has finally, um, you know, he's died and he's not the king anymore. And David, who was anointed as king but hadn't taken the position yet, has now risen to power. And the first few chapters of the book of 2 Samuel tell how he rises to power and how he puts everything to rest and those, uh, those, those uh, opponents of Israel that had been plaguing them for a while that David finally beats them back enough so that they can have some sense of peace. That's what the first few chapters of 2 Samuel tell you about how David is not just an aspiring king or just an anointed king, but he's the king in reality. And this shepherd on the throne now, he is going to now have what is almost one of the first stories of his settled kingship. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it begins like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. Did you hear that subtle note? Who is it that normally goes to the kings? But 
Who is going here? Does David go? David stays home. How quickly the protector of Israel has settled into his new palace. As the story goes, and I know many of you are so familiar with this story, David, at some point in his extra time, while he's not on the battlefield, right, he is on top of his palace surveying all that he's ruling over. And he sees one of his subjects, a woman named Bathsheba. And David sees her becomes infatuated from her and notices that she is very beautiful. And so he calls for her. He summons his subject to his royal bed. And in a story that has no equality or dynamic of power for Bathsheba, David abuses his situation and takes advantage of this woman who is under his power. And it is not long until we are told the woman conceived and so she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. David is told, he's inquired about this woman and he knows who her husband is. Her husband is one of his own soldiers. It's actually a foreign man who has come and is fighting for for Israel, Uriah the Hittite, we're told. And in this story, David has to manipulate the military structures that are under him so that he can have this man killed so that his own, his own sin, his abuse of his power in taking this soldier's wife will not be found out. So he makes sure, after a long story, it's an incredible story, but the text wants us to understand for sure that Uriah was loyal and tried to honor David and tried to make honor his, his, his fellow soldiers, but David manipulates the situation has Uriah put in the very hardest part of the heat of the battle and he's killed. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's this story. We start off in the last verse of chapter 11. It says that the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. And chapter 12 continues, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. He came to him and said to him this, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and, he grew, and it grew with him, grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup. He used to drink from his cup. <clears throat> and let's see, what's the word? And, and, and it used to lie on his chest and it was like a daughter to him. 
And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he t- took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, the man in the story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. (coughs) And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your family and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if that had been too little, I would have added so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You've struck down the Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So notice here in this story, when Nathan is ready to call David out onto the carpet, the image that he brings to to come to the shepherd king is nothing other than a lamb. He takes David back to his roots, right? And reminds him of the times when he used to be out there with the sheep and his job was to take care of the ones who were weak and who needed rescue and who needed to be helped in in their trouble, right? He calls him out on the carpet and say, you're just like one of these other powerful people who instead of looking out for the ones that are weak, you're the one, you're the one who is taking advantage, you're the one who is abusing your authority and your power, you're the one who has overstepped. David, it's like you hate God. Did you hear that? That you have despised me? David, who came to power saying, God is the one who will do it. God is the one who is able and who will rescue me. In this moment, the prophet of God comes to the house of David and says, you hate God. This thing that you've done is not the sort of thing that a person who loves God does. You've come to the place. David, how have, you, how have you come to the place where you despise the Lord? Now to his credit, David repents and he's cut to the heart for what he's done and he recognizes his problem and his sin. And David continues even through the rest of the story to have moments where he does things not altogether unlike this, where he fails and he abuses his authority or he becomes infatuated with the power of his armies, okay? He spends a lot of time counting swords, inspecting his arsenal when he should have been taking care of his people. 
When David is called on this, he often repents and he comes back to it. But that's the way the story goes, and it's remarkable that the story goes this way. This is the story of Israel's best king. He's the best that they've ever had or that they will ever have. And yet when Israel tells the story of their hero, they don't tell it without his flaws. They make no mistake about David being God himself. They will tell the story of him as though he's a human who makes, who makes mistakes and has sin in his life. The text recognizes of their best king ever. It recognizes that David was a better king before he has power than he was after he was enthroned. 90% of the good stuff of David's story comes before Saul dies. Before he's the one who has the power. I love the stories of David. I love the story of David and Goliath. I love the story of David and Jonathan. I love the story of, of, of David and the, and the way that he has to go through these moments where he's being pursued by Saul and he's running and hiding in the caves and all that kind of stuff. I don't like the story of David and Bathsheba and I don't like the story of David and his sons uh, Absalom and Amnon and the story of his daughter Tamar who suffers under his house. And I don't like the stories of when David has to, uh, uh, becomes in infatuated with the size of his army. There's so much to love and so much to hate. There's so much to celebrate and so much to mourn. David gives us a lot to love, but ultimately, even by the time he's dying in his bed at the end of the story, David leaves us longing. It's a story of the best things can be and oh God, is that the best things can be? This is the story. This is the story of Israel's shepherd king. The story of David. Israel went on to have many other kings Generations and generations are held up to whether they're at least as good as David or is not. And some are said that they do, and some are said that they're worse. But David left a taste in the mouth of Israel for what things could be, even if they weren't fully realized under him. He at least left some idea of a standard that Israel had always used to evaluate the people that ruled over them. And so it was that nearly 500 years later, in a time when Israel had suffered, Judah had suffered under many, many kings that failed to meet even the standard of David, another prophet came. A prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 34, speaking about the kings of Israel. The word of the Lord came to me, mortal son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. You hear that shepherd language again? Prophesy 
against the shepherds of Israel. Go to the shepherds and say, thus says the Lord God, ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you don't feed the sheep. You've not strengthened the weak. You've not healed the sick. You've not bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you've ruled them. And so they're scattered. They're scattered because there was no shepherd and they're scattered and they've become food for all the animals. My sheep were scattered and they wandered over all the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth and there was no one to search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild animals and since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, my shepherds have fed themselves, they've not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep at their hand and I will put a stop to their feeding of the sheep and no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths so that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, I myself, I myself will search for my sheep and I myself will seek them out. And as the shepherds seek out their flocks when they're among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out all my sheep. And I, I will rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from among the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and by the water courses and all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them. I will feed them with good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture and they shall lie down in good grazing land and they shall feed on rich pasture in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. But those who have become fat and strong, I'll destroy and I will feed them with justice. Well, it's got a little mustard on it, doesn't it? <laughs> God finally holds all of the kings of Judah and Israel in his view and says, these ain't no shepherds. They haven't done the work of the shepherd that the king was supposed to do. And the remedy is not, I'll send a better one. The remedy is, I will be their shepherd. And thus the stage is set for that incredible thunderclap that sounds in John chapter 10 when Jesus speaks to Israel there and he says, I am the good shepherd. When Jesus talks about feeding his sheep and when Jesus talks about recognizing and knowing who his sheep are and not calling on them to pray on them, but calling them to be himself, to, to serve, to, to come with him and to be protected by him. 
Jesus is calling back to the longings that were left in our mouths after the time of David and all of those who stepped before him. He is the good shepherd. He is the one. He is the one that in that old psalm, right? And doggone it, I cannot quote it without using some these and thous and some thus says, you know, in my mouth. But you know Psalm 23 better than I do. The Lord is my what? And I shall not. He makes me to lie down in. This is kind of fun. He leads me beside. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the what? The shadow of death. Amen, man. You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all, all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord, what? Forever. Jesus, the good shepherd, is the king that Israel never had. Even David writes those words. David, who was the shepherd king himself sitting on the throne, recognizes and says of God, it's actually the Lord who is the shepherd. But if I gave, may give you one more twist. In the book of Revelation, amongst all the imagery of Jesus that we have in that final book that speaks about his victory over his final enemies. I don't think Jesus is ever called a shepherd in the book of Revelation. Instead, when he emerges on the scene in the book, he shows up as a wounded lamb. The Lord is my shepherd. Revelation turns the tables at the end. It's actually the lamb who is my shepherd. Over 30 times, Revelation speaks of Jesus as the one who was offered, who didn't, in the way of David, take on his power and then use it just for himself, but he's the one who actually submitted and died for the sake of those who he was calling to his own. Jesus doesn't abuse his sheep. He identifies with us, he comes, and his rescue is to be alongside us and to suffer with us and for us and ultimately be the one who is in victory through his death. I love the story of David. I love it so much. I love the heroic parts, but I've come to love the human parts of it too. I love the way it tells a story and reminds us of what we really need before God. You know, I've come to realize something. It was a hard lesson. But I've come to recognize that the world would not, in fact, be better if I was in charge of it. 
I might be able to help a thing or two there, a thing or two here. The world is finally as it is to be, not when better humans are in charge of it, but when God is. And the best that we humans have is to, in humility, recognize our place before God, to recognize that we are at our best, not when we're at our best, We're at our best when we depend on God for everything. May God's people, may we as God's people learn to be shepherded by the lamb, to learn to follow the one who was slain and yet risen, to come to know that God is in charge. He leads us beside the still waters and he is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord, the lamb, is my shepherd. I need no other king. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you reign among us? May we bow in humility at you our true good shepherd. May we come to adore the lamb and to follow him into the coming kingdom. In the name of Jesus, the lamb and the shepherd, we pray, amen.